Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Edward Lawrence Shefflin was a prospector and U.S. Army scout stationed in Arizona in the 1870s. Back then, many folks were seeking the promise of silver ore in the area, but Ed Shefflin was described as much more determined and much more rugged than the rest. In 1876, David P. Lansing of Phoenix, Arizona, described Shefflin as about the strangest specimen of human flesh I ever saw. He was six feet, two inches tall, and had black hair that hung several inches below his shoulders, and a beard that had not been trimmed or combed for so long a time that it was a mass of unkempt knots and mats. He wore clothing pieced and patched from deerskins, corduroy, and flannel, and his hat was originally a slouch hat that had been pieced with rabbit skin until very little of the original felt remained. But something tells me this look didn't stick with Ed for very long. Despite the dangers, Ed would often go out on expeditions in search for ore. His home base was Camp Wachaka. Soldiers would often ask him about his efforts. Ed consistently responded with hope and determinations, but apparently surrounded by a bunch of pessimists, those soldiers would tell him, you'll find something, you'll find your tombstone, as so many others have before. Well, fatefully, on August 1st, 1877, Shefflin did find his tombstone, but probably not like anyone expected. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. The San Pedro Valley had been the destination for intrepid miners and those seeking work prior to the 1870s, but our Ed Shefflin found something that would be a game-changer— On August 1st, 1877, Ed struck silver and appropriately dubbed his new mine Tombstone. He found yet another mine nearby that he christened The Graveyard. Ed's name for his silver mine carried over as the name for the settlement founded near the site, fueled by a silver rush that attracted fortune hunters to the new town. When miners came to town, they didn't just bring their supplies and hopes, they ushered in a need for civil structures, food, education for growing families, and entertainment. The town grew significantly into the mid-1880s as the local mines produced a staggering 40 to $85 million in silver, the largest productive silver mine district in Arizona. Its population grew from 100 to around 14,000 in less than seven years. Tombstone's residents had access to a school, a handful of churches, a bowling alley, ice cream shop, and most notably, 110 saloons, 14 gambling halls, and numerous dance halls and brothels. Over 7,000 folks answered the promising call of silver by the 1880s, and the famous Ert brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan, were among them. Shortly after, their friend Doc Holliday, a former dentist from Georgia turned gambler and gunfighter, followed suit. 
Virgil took on the role of Tombstone's marshal in 1880, but the Herb faction wasn't solely committed to upholding the law. They had income that was unrelated, with stakes in mines and saloons and occasional work as bartenders and private security. There was a class division among Tombstone residents, and that culminated in numerous skirmishes and conflicts, but the most notable occurred between the Earp brothers and the Cowboys, a loosely organized band of outlaws who were known cattle stealers. Tombstone sits about 30 miles away from the Mexican border, and at the time, the government of Mexico maintained a high tax on imported tobacco, cattle, and alcohol. Cowboys gathered in small groups in this liminal space and seemingly made a lot of money from smuggling. They also brought a love of drink and shooting to Tombstone, but they were allowed to stay because they also brought a lot of money to saloons, theaters, and of course, brothels. There were various altercations that exacerbated the tense relationship of these two groups, but the final straw was added in October 1881 when an ordinance was passed in Tombstone prohibiting the carrying of weapons in town. This riled the cowboys who were used to carrying their weapons wherever they pleased. On October 25, 1881, Doc Holliday and Ike Clanton of the Cowboys were at the Alhambra Saloon when they got into a fight. I'm almost positive this started with Doc Holliday declaring, I'm your Huckleberry, but this could be wishful thinking on my part. Cooler heads temporarily prevailed. Holliday eventually headed home to his room in a boarding house, but Clanton kept drinking and getting more worked up. Virgil was still the marshal, which meant enforcement of this unwelcome edict fell to him. But if there was beef against Virgil, the whole Herb Holiday group felt the effects. Threats of this kind, though, were commonplace. The follow-through wasn't. So no one, including Virgil Earp, took the threat from Clanton very seriously. The next day, around 9 in the morning, a policeman roused Virgil after just a few hours of slumber to tell him that Ike Clanton was staggering around town, now armed and still drunk, threatening to kill all the Earp brothers and their friend Doc Holliday on sight. Initially unfazed, Virgil did get around to disarming the very drunk Clanton before escorting him to see a judge. After receiving a fine and being let go, Ike, infuriated, sought out a group of five cowboys, including his brother Billy and the McLaurys, and went with them to Fremont Street. The bolstered threats from the cowboys resulted in Virgil's quick deputizing of his brothers and Doc. The sheriff tried to convince the Earps to back off, but they pressed on, finding the Clantons and the McLaurys in a lot near the old Kindersley Corral. 30 shots and 30 seconds later, Tom and Frank McClory and Billy Clanton were dead in the dust. Ike Clanton and Billy Claiborne had made a successful getaway when the shooting began. The lawmen all survived, but Wyatt was the only one to remain unscathed. It wasn't clear what side had fired the first shot, and the Herb Holiday group was arrested and held in jail for about a month. The hearing brought the result that the Cowboys were not unarmed, therefore closing out the case against the Earps and Holiday. But it was not the end of the conflict. On December 28, 1881, just two months after the shootout, Virgil Earp was ambushed and maimed in a murder attempt by the Cowboys. It's believed that an apparition of Virgil appears in this spot, but it never makes it across the street. Morgan Earp was the next target, in March of 1882, he was shot and killed by a cowboy who aimed through a glass door of the saloon Morgan was sitting in. The saloon was then called Campbell and Hatch's Saloon, but is currently the Red Buffalo Trading Company. 
it seems that Morgan is still frequenting the place even in death and has been said to even help stock shelves. For these crimes, cowboys covered their own with alibis and no charges were filed. Wyatt tried to form a band to get justice, but didn't have much luck. Wyatt left Arizona in 1882 without exacting his revenge. After his death, the first biography of Wyatt Earp was published in 1931. It gave us a dramatic telling of the shootout at the OK Corral and other events in Earp's life that still color our understanding of events in Tombstone. Even though the shootout occurred about six buildings to the west of the OK Corral, it's firmly held that the latter is haunted by the spirits of those slain cowboys. Several witnesses have reported seeing the fading apparition of men dressed in cowboy attire, often appearing with guns drawn, perhaps locked into a perpetual battle with the Earps. Others have claimed to have felt numerous cold spots in various areas of the corral. One of the other most haunted and storied spots in town is the Birdcage Theater. As someone who has visited here a few times, this place has changed very little since its heyday. It's like walking into a time capsule. There's even still bullet holes in the ceiling from especially rowdy nights. Established in the vein of Shefflin Hall, a fine operatic venue, William and Lottie Hutchinson hoped that their theater would draw respectable folks in Tombstone. But money talks, and the local population of lusty young miners preferred bodier types of entertainment. So the Hutchinsons delivered. In 1882, just one year in, the New York Times referred to the birdcage as the roughest, bodiest, and most wicked night spot between Basin Street and the Barbary Coast. Birdcage certainly seems to refer to the boxes attached to the ceiling, where the women engaged in sex work would host their companion and make good on the exchange. But the women didn't do just that. They also attended the bar and performed in a variety of shows. Stage shows at the birdcage started at 9 p.m. and continued until 1 a.m. or so the next morning. Waiter girls in short dresses with low-cut necklines peddled as many drinks as they could. Beer was just 50 cents on the main floor and a dollar in the curtain boxes. Skits, music acts, and comedy shows were all featured and typically accentuated by bright clothing and short skirts. Jokes were definitely of the naughty kind. In general, the birdcage was a rowdy place. It was the scene of at least 16 gun and knife fights over the years. By the time the doors were shut permanently, there were 140 of those bullet holes in the walls and ceilings that I told you about. In their short and bright outfits, women performed a popular act called the human fly. Performers walked upside down on the ceiling over the stage with specially outfitted shoes that had clamps on them that fitted into holes bored into the ceiling. At least one of those performers fell to her death when a clamp slipped, but there's not many details on that. A very popular story connected to the birdcage seems dubious, but is quite striking. The top lady at the birdcage was known as Margarita, and her supposed main rival was Gertie the Gold Dollar from Crystal Palace, another brothel. Gertie had quite a committed customer in Billy Milgreen. Some even allege that Milgreen was Gertie's live-in lover. Billy, apparently with a different conception of loyalties, found himself in the birdcage with the lovely Margarita in his lap, Gertie, the gutsy, gritty woman, also found herself in the birdcage and as a witness of betrayal. Grabbing a handful of Margarita's hair, Gold Dollar stabbed her with a double-edged stiletto that was stashed in her garter. She hacked at Margarita's heart. Margarita died before anyone could offer aid. Gertie and Billy left, and she apparently discarded the weapon behind the theater. 
When she was found, charges weren't filed because there was no weapon on which to base them. Margarita's death was unresolved and her spirit supposedly haunts the birdcage still. Then, supposedly, in 1982, when they excavated an old privy behind the birdcage, the stiletto used by Gold Dollar was found. It seems rather convenient that the blade was found on the centennial of the slaying, if it happened at all, but it's a great story. Carmelita Jimenez's death by suicide is another potentially apocryphal tale that's consistently repeated. Carmelita Jimenez and her partner, Frederick Baker, were both performers at the birdcage. If true, I'd like to note that Carmelita is also described as a well-known singer. They lived together for four or five months before her death in the middle of August 1888. Frederick had noticed of late that she was not in her right spirits, rather downhearted and melancholy. As the day wound down at home after performing at the birdcage, Carmelita began to cry. When asked if she was upset about him, she assured him she wasn't. The next day, after rehearsals at the birdcage, Frederick saw her vomit alongside the washstand. When asked, Carmelita said she intentionally took medicine to make her sick, but wouldn't tell Frederick what it was. He assumed that she had taken an emetic, something that seems to have been consumed widely if abusively in the 19th century, or was at least accessible to those who wanted or needed to purge their systems of some real or perceived affliction. Regardless, he assumed incorrectly, she'd actually taken two teaspoons of rough-on-rats, an arsenic poison. This was only discovered after a doctor was rushed to Carmelita, but the actual emetic he applied was too late to save her. During its heyday, the building was sold at least twice, but its final curtain closed in 1892 as Tombstone's water problem pushed out the bulk of miners who would work elsewhere, which we'll talk about later. Because of fires through Tombstone, as well as the wear and tear experienced in a mining boomtown, most structures are recreations and modern builds, but the Birdcage Theater wasn't constructed with wood, it's made of concrete, and today it's the only building on Allen Street that is original. When it closed its doors, everything inside was left in place. The doors weren't opened again until 1934, and when they were, Tombstone found itself with a perfect window into its past. As we move on to the Boot Hill Graveyard, so named because most of the men there supposedly died with their boots on, let's also move on to the rapid demise of Tombstone and its eventual status as a ghost town. Water was threatening Tombstone as early as 1880, but each year the mines seemed to strike more and more of it. The flow wasn't at first large enough to stop work, but experienced miners thought the water flow would increase, and it did. All sources I've read indicate that pumping water from mine shafts worked, until it just didn't. A double whammy seems to have ended things quite suddenly, as a fire destroyed the pumping system on May 26, 1886, and then the price of silver dropped, dashing hopes of funding a restoration. Like the boomtown, the Boot Hill Cemetery had a quick rise and a short fall. Originally started in 1878, it was referred to as the City Cemetery, until an actual city cemetery was built in the town. Then it earned the name of Old Cemetery, which it kept until 1929. That's when we get the name Boot Hill Graveyard. By the 1920s, it had fallen into disrepair, and interested residents worked diligently to track down information regarding those who were buried there. Those who were buried here usually had their places marked by wood, which doesn't hold up well, especially in Arizona's climate. Most of what visitors see there now are recreations of the originals for the benefit of tourists, so the veracity of some claims seem dubious, 
but certainly entertaining. And some aren't seemingly dubious, but are in fact total fabrications intended to spur tourism. If names come up, Find a Grave seems to have a robust database of internments. There are about 250 or so graves in this cemetery, and many of them were outlaws. Brothers Tom and Frank McClory and Billy Clanton, killed by the Earps and Doc Holliday in the shootout, are buried here. It's claimed that Billy's spirit is one of the most active and apparently rises from his grave each night. Many claim that Billy haunts both the graveyard and Allen Street, where he died in the shootout. There are few places that would be so predictably haunted as Tombstone, but how many of these ghost stories are just that, stories? And what other secrets does this old mining town hold? Up next, we'll talk with Tombstone local and renowned paranormal investigator Dwight Hull, who will fill us in on some of the more famous haunts in town, plus some others you may never have even heard of. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so I am now joined by Dwight Hole, who is a... Dwight, what is your position in Tombstone officially? Everybody tells me you're like the resident paranormal expert. Oh, I hate that word expert, but yeah, I, I'm kind of the, the paranormal guy. And my, you know, my wife and I have been investigating Tombstone for, well, I have for over 20 years, Rhonda for about the last 10. So we're kind of the go-to folks for the paranormal in Tombstone. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I know people always shy away from the word expert when it comes to the paranormal, which I think is fair because people always say, how can you prove the existence of something or how can you call yourself an expert in something that we can barely prove the existence of? But I think it's fair to say that if you have a lot of knowledge of the history of the paranormal or if you are someone who knows a lot about the history of a location, as you seem to do, I think expert is fair. I think you're allowed to call yourself something like that. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tombstone is such an interesting town. I think I met you there years and years ago. I have not been back since then. What year was that? Uh, 2008, I believe. Yeah, so it's been a minute, but it seems like not that long ago to me. It was just such an interesting town with such an interesting history. And I think what I love about it is that it, I expect it's probably not nearly as lawless as it was, but it doesn't seem like it's changed much. Like you really do feel like you're taking a little step back in time. And do you think that that might have something to do with why spirits tend to remain there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tombstone is still Tombstone, whether it's today or 150 years ago. Um, you know, the players have changed, but it's still the same thing. It's small town. And instead of silver, you know, they're mining tourists. You know, <laughs> so it, it's still kind of the same thing. The shops are still there, the, or at least the buildings are still there. You know, all the streets are still there. So, yeah, there's a bit of familiarity, I think, and a bit of 
the tombstone attitude that I guess still prevails today. So I think that's what helps keep some of the spirits there is they liked kind of that raucous body atmosphere and it still has it there today. Yeah, absolutely. I I remember that very much. And you read through, you know, kind of what happened there over the years. And now it seemed like there was at the very least a bigger population back then. Definitely a lot less buildings are still standing. But how has the population changed over the years? From back in the heyday till now, I mean, back in the heyday, we had like, gosh, almost 20,000 people in Tombstone, which if you come to Tombstone, you'd probably look around and say, where'd they put them all? Mm-hmm. It's not that big of a place. but And you're right. There's a lot of buildings that aren't there anymore that were occupied by some of that 20,000. Now we have a population of about 1,300. So yeah, it's a dramatic decrease in you know living population. But boy, we sure have the ghost population that still makes up for it, I think. I imagine. So what do you say is probably the most haunted spot in the town? What is your favorite spirited place to visit? Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, my favorite place, I have to say probably the birdcage, just because it's probably the most untouched building from the back in the day. But really and honestly, you know, you've been to enough ghost town and old west towns you can't throw a rock without hitting a haunted place in Tombstone. I mean, it's just saturated with hauntings. So it's pretty much, you know, people come to town, they say, well, what's the haunted place? Where are we going to go to find ghosts? Uh, pretty much anywhere. Go get ice cream, you know? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> pretty much anywhere there in Tombstone. But, you know, my favorite place because of the authenticity and the originality, probably the birdcage. Not much has changed there. I remember going in there. I feel like it was empty for a little while. It was almost like a time capsule before it was reopened. But can you still see bullet holes in the walls there or anything? Oh, yeah. All the bullet holes are still in the walls, the ceiling, the floor. All the original curtains and tapestries are still up. A lot of the old original paintings are still there, the stage, the original piano. So it's it really is like walking into a time capsule or, you know, you go back in time as soon as you go through the doors. It's an amazing place. So what would you say is probably the most frequent occurrence there as far as paranormal activity? The most frequent, I think, is being touched by, it's usually a female that goes around and kind of touches the men when they come in there. And that seems to be the most reported. I've had it happen a few times. In fact, I've got a picture of me inside the birdcage and you can see a mirror on one of the pianos and in the mirror you can see me and you can you know see a woman's head with long black hair on my shoulder but you can't see it in the picture of me because it shows me and then me in the mirror so it's a very cool picture but that's probably the most frequent thing is people being touched Yeah, I could see that. And then I remember in the Ghost Hunters episode that was there, which unfortunately, that was right before I started with Ghost Hunters. And so I I didn't get I got to investigate later, obviously, but they had a really interesting experience where they had put like a cord up or something and the cord literally just like lifted up and dropped off of they had used it to wire a camera or something. And it wasn't like it slipped, like it literally like lifted up and fell. So is there a lot of movement in there? Do things get moved around a lot? Yeah, there's a lot of movement. Um, 
you put stuff someplace and then, you know, you go back for it and it's moved or downstairs in the poker room. There's a lot of stuff that gets moved. You can see it move or you hear it move. Yeah. And in that uh, Ghost Hunters episode, it was a cord from one of the cameras that went over one of the alarm bells that were on display there. And it just lifted right up off the bell and just fell back down. In fact, when you and I were there with Lloyd Arbach and Jeff Belanger. That's right. That's right. Jeff kept talking about being touched on the back of the neck where we were all there. Oh, that's funny. I'll have to remind him of that. He's obviously very into the paranormal. For those who don't know, Jeff Belanger is a really fabulous paranormal author. He's got a number of books out there. He's a great friend of mine. But he's very hard on his paranormal experiences. And so I had forgotten about that. So I'll have to remind him. You know, he's had just a few. So that's a good one. So Birdcage Theater is obviously high on the list. Now, the other spot that a lot of people talk about, which I was surprised when I saw it in person because it was a lot smaller than I imagined it would be, was the OK Corral. So does anything happen near the OK Corral? It does. It does. Not so much actually inside, although there are stories, but right outside, because it's kind of walled off now for obvious reasons. But on the other side of the wall next to the main thoroughfare that goes through there, a lot more stuff happens there because that's where the gunfight actually took place was almost right on the street. That's right. And we've investigated out there, you know, several times. And it's difficult because you always, I don't care what time of day it is or night, you always have cars going by. So it's difficult for noise contamination. But we have gotten some just amazing EVPs right outside the OK Corral. One of them being when we were out there, we were saying, OK, who shot first? We want to know who shot first, uh, the McClowries or the... And we got a Class A EVP saying, leave these boys alone. Wow. That was amazing to me. And honestly, we never asked that question again. We've been back a couple times, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to respect what the spirits say, and we're just not going to go there again. That's something that we kind of strive for in our investigations. You know, sometimes you kind of have to think outside the box when you're investigating some of these more well-known haunts because it's got to be strange if you're some sort of spirit or entity to just kind of day in and day out have people talking about the moment of your death when you had an entire life before that. And so that's why I always encourage people to kind of think prior to that moment of death and see what can you draw upon in their life that they might actually want to talk about or might trigger them to speak out. And so that might be kind of a perfect example of like, okay, they're over this. Right. Yeah. And they get tired of being asked the same thing day in and day out. Like you said, it's amazing while doing investigations and being so involved in the history, you know, my wife and I have kind of switched our views pretty quickly on who the real bad guys were, who the real good guys were. You know, we like the Clintons and McClowries just from what we have experienced have talked to them. We've actually been out to the Clanton Ranch where they live just outside of Tombstone, Mm. uh, which is an amazing place. Is that open to the public or is that a place that you kind of have to go visit? It is. Yeah. You have to know where it is because it's literally (laughs) out in the middle of the desert. It's an amazing, amazing place. And it hooks into, of course, Tombstone and its history. So we love going out there. Now, tell me about the uh, Boot Hill Graveyard. I do remember visiting that briefly. Yeah, the Boot Hill Graveyard, it is a neat place to go. We've had a few experiences out there, but mostly with, 
and, and it sounds funny, but mostly with spirit animals, not so much the spirit people. We've gone out there, we've done EVP sessions, and we've come back, listened to them, and we've had dogs barking right next to us that we didn't hear, of course, when we were there. We've heard footsteps, you know, dog or something running through there. And we have gotten a couple EVPs, but it's a great place. Now, it used to be a lot bigger than what the tourists see now. In fact, there's a Circle K just on the other side of the street, kind of down the same side. And that used to be part of Boot Hill. So there's a Circle K built on top of part of the cemetery? And every time they dig to put in a new gas pump or a new tank, they'd always find some bones. They'd have to stop. They'd have to call in the University of Arizona archaeological team. They'd have to do a dig there. And uh, believe it or not, that Circle K next to Boot Hill is the most haunted Circle K I have ever investigated in my life. It's amazing. (laughs) I don't think, you know, I need to cross that one off my list. I don't think I've ever investigated a Circle K, but this might be the perfect opportunity. (laughs) It might be, yeah. It is crazy haunted in there at night. I used to get called in there like the milk aisle, you know, because there would be phenomenon going on. Yeah, they used to call me in at oh dark thirty, saying, "Hey, we, you know, we got all kind of stuff. Can you come in here and talk to these guys?" Or I'm like, "What am I supposed to do?" But wow, it was great, and you know, I love it. And it's probably the one of the most haunted quick marts I've ever been to. That is wild, and it's just so funny that you know people just think it's okay to just kind of keep build- when you build so close to a historical old cemetery. Like odds are, especially out there, the you know the gravestones and stuff get so weathered, and they kind of just melt away over time. You never know what you're going to get if you build that close to something like that. Why do you think there's animal spirits out there as opposed to people? You know, that's a really good question. And again, I think, you know, it could be, we've tried to theorize on this over and over again, could be dead dogs from whoever's buried there that they're still sticking close to their master. Because interestingly, whenever we go to the Clantons and McLowry's graves there, that's where we always get the dogs barking, hmm. which is very interesting. And of course, past Boot Hill, not too far from Boot Hill, there was a big tent city from all the miners and stuff like that that lived there. So, you know, who, who knows? You know, all the animals are there, but they seem to gravitate there. So what do you think is like maybe a, a little known piece of history about Tombstone? You know, it, there's a lot of like very well-known kind of moments in time there, but are there any like tragedies or deaths there that people don't really talk about much that you think have kind of been overlooked historically? Um, You know, there are. And I'll give you one good example, because you don't really hear a lot about the Chinese influence in Tombstone. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain section of town that was called Hop Town or Chinatown that was run by China Mary. We do an event every year. In fact, we're going to have it again next week, a big event. We did an event uh, a few years ago, and we had Brian Cano as one of our guests. And we were in a building that was in Hoptown, the old Hoptown. And we got just an amazing experience with EVPs and some pendulum work that we were doing about a brother who killed his brother and couldn't cross over. And he was feeling guilty, and the brother that he killed came back to try to get him. And we've got all this on tape. In fact, we had a film crew from New York that was videoing all this. And we had some extremely emotional things about the ghost that came back 
And there's a lot of death in Hoptown that people just don't know about because it was the Chinese section and it was kind of put aside, but it was just a very, very interesting investigation, great EVPs, great film, you know, evidence. When we crossed them over, there wasn't a dry. We had 30 people in that building. Everybody was in tears at the moment of the crossover because they could feel it. So yeah, there's a lot of, gosh, you know, again, throw a rock, there's history and hauntings and tombstone. We could do, you know, six shows on all the, the different ones that we've found out in tombstone and it's so good. You've got performers and prostitutes that were associated with birthdays um, that people forget about. And mm-hmm. so it's always interesting to talk to them as well. That's unknown or untapped history. Have you ever been able to like find some evidence and then kind of cross-reference it with documentation in some way and it kind of uncover a piece of history that maybe was overlooked otherwise? Well, yeah, at the Buford House, which is one of the most haunted houses, private homes in Tombstone. In fact, Rhonda and I got married there because it's <laughs> such a haunted place. Um, but yeah, we have. We've really delved into the, the spiritual history and the actual history of the place. And I've found that, as well as you know, sometimes the written and handed down history isn't exactly what happened. Yeah, exactly. You dig far enough and deep enough, you find out that the stories have changed or it was altered or it was whatever. And the Buford House is a prime example where history and folklore kind of got intertwined and the story got kind of uh, lost along the way, so to speak. Again, that's very common in Tombstone between the actual history and the folklore that comes with it. You often have to dig through a lot to get to the truth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, since it was kind of lawless, a lot of the things aren't quite in the newspapers and whatnot. I mean, there is a lot of interesting information if you could start to dig through like historical archives, but I imagine a lot of it is very skewed and not necessarily accurate. (laughs) So the Buford House, is that a place that people can visit as well? Everyone knows the obvious spots, but, you know, I'd love to spotlight some places people might not know. The Buford House is not open to the public. Like I say, it's a private residence. It, it was uh, an Airbnb for a while, but because of the whole COVID thing, they had to shut that down. So it's strictly just a private residence now. Hmm. There are a lot of ghost towns around it. Other areas in Tombstone that maybe not well known, I'm trying to think of some of the better ones. I mean, I've investigated just about every building in Tombstone. The courthouse is a great place. Yeah, the Episcopal Church. Yeah, it's funny. Always in my brain, because I spent a lot of time in Virginia City because I lived in California for so long. So in my brain, I always kind of mix up the two in memories because they're so similar. And I have to like catch myself because they literally look very similar and have very similar histories as well. Have you heard any wild stories from people as far as encounters they've had with the paranormal in town that really stick out in your brain? You know, as far as wild ones, there's just, I mean, again, there's dozens of stories, but we've had people tell us that, you know, they've walked down the street in the middle of the night just to experience it. And they've seen very sharp, a ghost of Virgil Earp, and it started walking towards them and then disappeared. We've heard stories of, you know, the Clantons walking down the street and then disappearing. Stuff like that. 
you listen to enough of the stories and they kind of get wilder as they go. <laughs> right. I can imagine. How is Tombstone doing tourist-wise right now with everything going on with COVID? Are, are they recovering okay? Are people coming back now? Yeah, they are. They really are. They're coming back kind of in droves now that, you know, in Arizona here, everything's opened up and they've lifted all the mask stuff and everything else. So a lot of people from other states are actually flying in again to Tombstone because it's kind of, quote unquote, back to normal, so to speak. So yeah, it's really getting busy now and people are coming in. We've got probably 30 or 40 people coming in next week for our events. So we've kind of booked the hotels up, which is good. So yeah, it's it's starting to really come back again. And that's kind of the thing of Tombstone. You know, you think it's dead. It's a town too tough to die. <laughs> and before you know it, you know, it's, it's booming again. And that's kind of the history of Tombstone. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. When the pandemic was really in the thick of it and, and everything was closed and quiet, did you do any investigating then or did Tombstone just kind of have a different vibe to it when that was going on? Yeah, you know, it did. It had a different vibe and it was very, very difficult to try to do any investigating because nobody wanted to open a building up for you. So it was difficult to investigate. But yeah, it was a very different vibe. It was, I don't use this word often, but it was creepy because it wasn't the same. It wasn't that same vibe that you get when you go there. Now, what happened, I don't know whether it was just the absence of people and things closing down, but it did change it for a while. But thankfully, it's, it's, <laughs> it's back and kicking again. Yeah, as we've been investigating again and kind of back out there, I always ask that because I don't know that we'll ever see that again in some of these haunted historical locations where the living people were just gone for months. And it really affected some of the hauntings. And as soon as you kind of thought about the human aspect of these spirits and kind of like how confused they must be, or, you know, assuming that there's intelligence behind them, that we've been in some locations where activity just like completely ramped up at that time. And then in other locations, it hasn't even really come back since then. So it's interesting to see how the personality of each haunt handled those months of quiet. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to kind of find out next week with our event, because we're going to be doing a few different locations. So it'll be interesting to see just coming out of the pandemic, if things are going to be as active or whether it's going to be cooled down a little bit or maybe even ramped up. So we're curious. How often do you do events out there? Ron and I put on an event every year in May, right around our anniversary, because we got married at the Buford House May 18th. So we try to do an event during our anniversary, just kind of our thing we'd like to do. So we have it every year. We've done it for about seven Six, years. Seven years. And it's, it's been great. We have a lot of people that come in. We have, you know, sort of talent that we book to come in and investigate with the folks. And of course, not last year because we got everything was shut down. But again, we're picking up and hopefully we can continue. Well, I think this will air too late for this year's, but how can people kind of keep tabs on you and to sign up for next year and, and just kind of see what you're up to? Where can they find you? Oh, they can find us any place on social media, either through my name, Dwight Hall, my wife's name, Rhonda Hall, or Believe Paranormal, which is B-E-E-L-I-E-V-E, paranormal.com. We have a website. Uh, we have two books. If you're interested, you know, folks out there, we do have two Working books out there. Working on a third, almost complete. And of all 
the areas around Tombstone, in Tombstone, and Southern Arizona. So for those Old West fans, it might be an interesting read. Well, that is fantastic. And I thank you guys for joining me and just kind of telling people a little bit more about the haunts in town. And I'm sure people are going to want to come visit because now I know I do. So (laughs) as soon as I get some time, I've got to pop into town and explore again because I miss it. It's a really great place and so much history and so many ghosts. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, guys. Oh, thank you. And hey, if you want to pop into town, just let us know and uh, we'll take you around. For sure. It's been many years since I visited the town of Tombstone, and admittedly, putting together this episode made me really want to take a trip back there. There's something about the creation of an entire boomtown, the buzz of new riches and dreams being fulfilled, coupled with the Wild West romanticism that's really never left those streets. There is one memory that stands out for me when I visited so many years ago. I had just completed an investigation and found myself at 2 a.m., walking alone down Allen Street on the way to my rental car. I didn't see a ghost, but in those moments of stillness, I could so strongly feel and imagine what Tombstone looked like during its heyday in the 1880s. It draws you in and takes you back, just like it's drawn so many history lovers, tourists, and more recently, paranormal researchers. Perhaps that's why, when so many boomtowns wasted away and disappeared, Tombstone is still lovingly referred to as the town too tough to die. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.